Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Oh, sure, there's the war on Ukraine, the latest Trump indictment, and Hollywood strikes, but the story this week is the heat. Last month was the hottest June on record. July 4th and 5th were the hottest days. Death Valley reached 125.6 degrees Fahrenheit Monday. Tuesday was the 19th consecutive day. Phoenix hit 110. Here's my 2021 conversation with climate scientist Michael Mann about his book, The New Climate War, in which he argues all is not lost, but he points out that now that denial is nearly impossible, the fossil fuel industry and their allies have adopted new strategies to postpone, slow, or disable effective action. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm going to be speaking today with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State and author most recently of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And you can learn more at Michael Mann, that's one word, Michael and M-A-N-N, michaelmann.net. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, most major podcast sites. And my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, TerrenceMcNally.net. More than 20 years ago, today's guest co-authored a scientific paper that included a graph that tracked the temperature over the last thousand years. Most of the graph consisted of a flat line that suddenly shot upward so dramatically that it became known as the hockey stick. One of the most famous graphs in modern science, not that there's a great deal of competition, it showed that the 1990s had been the Northern Hemisphere's warmest decade in a millennium and that climate change was real. Most of us know about the massive PR campaigns of the fossil fuel industry to sow confusion and denial in order to forestall critical changes in our energy diet that are necessary to successfully deal with greenhouse gas emissions and ultimately climate change. Well, Michael Mann was on the receiving end of the industry's wrath and revenge. His integrity was questioned. At one point, hackers attacked a server in the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia in the UK, stole and published cherry-picked bits of emails to cast doubt on the science and the scientists involved. Mann's emails were among the headliners in what the deniers nicknamed Climate Gate. Well, man's work was vindicated, but the encounter led him to develop expertise, not just on the science of climate, but also on the strategies and tactics of those who would postpone and disable society's efforts to deal with the existential global challenge of climate change. In his latest book, The New Climate War, Man debunks false narratives and arms readers with a real path forward to preserving our planet. He argues that all is not lost. Our civilization can be saved but only if we learn to recognize and defeat the latest tactics of the forces of inaction. Michael Mann is Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He's also director of the Penn State Earth System Science Center. He's received many honors and awards that recognize not only his work as a scientist, but also as a communicator of science findings. His books include Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, the Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics and Driving Us Crazy. And his latest, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Welcome, Michael Mann, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Uh, thank you so much, Terrence. It's great to be with you. 
Okay, and let me tell people that we are recording this conversation Tuesday, February 2nd. Uh, first of all, how are you? Uh, where are you? How are you coping with the resurgent pandemic? Thanks. We're doing okay here in central Pennsylvania. We've got about a foot of new snow on the ground right now with that storm that just came through. You know, it's an interesting time uh, now at the beginning of a new administration, the Biden administration, where there's sort of some light um, at the end of the tunnel now with respect to the pandemic, if we can all just sort of make it through these next challenging few months. Um, and of course, there's some light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the climate crisis, because there's renewed commitment on the part of this administration to actually doing something on climate. Mm -hmm. So we got we got us a short term local and we got us a long term global. <laughs> any any responses to uh, my introduction? Or does that seem about right? Uh, it, it is. Um, you know, the, the hockey stick, uh, as you described, it was this graph that showed actually sort of a, a little bit of a cooling trend uh, from about a thousand years ago into the depths of what we call the Little Ice Age and during the sort of 16, 17, 1800s. And then, of course, the abrupt warming of the past century. And so it does look like a, a hockey stick um, laid on its side with the upturned blade representing the, the warming spike of the past century. And we didn't really realize it when we began undertaking this research that uh, that would become a symbol in the very contentious climate change debate. And as a result of that, as you've noted, I found myself at the center of that debate. But indeed, as you also alluded to, I've come to embrace that role. Um, after all, I consider it a privilege to be in a position to talk with folks like you, other good folks who are trying to get the word out and to try to inform this conversation about what is in fact, the greatest challenge we face as a civilization. Uh, Michael, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind yeah. the ideas and the work that we'll talk about. So can you tell us, in your own words, a bit about your path to the work that you do today? Now, we've, we've we just talked about, like from 1999 to now, um, in terms of a couple of things, but sort of how you were drawn to science, to climate science, etc. Yeah, and that was actually the subject of a book I published um, some years ago called The Hockey Stick and, and the Climate Wars, uh, sort of, I suppose, my origin story, as it were. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, a mild-mannered scientist who, uh, you know, just preferred to be uh, left alone in the lab, um, crunching numbers uh, and doing computations. Uh, that's what I loved doing. I started out in uh, physics and applied math. I was working on my uh, PhD in, uh, in physics at Yale University. Uh, several years into that degree program, I'd passed all my exams, taken all my courses, and I just sort of realized that I wasn't passionate about the sorts of problems that I was being given to work on in, in theoretical physics. And so I had sort of a crisis of scientific identity, I suppose, and I literally opened up the catalog at Yale University to see what else was going on, what other projects were underway, um, other faculty at the university um, who were using you know, the skills that I had, the tools that I had learned, math and physics, to work on other interesting problems. And I saw that there was a professor, his name was Barry Saltzman, in the Department of Geology and Geophysics, who was indeed using physics and math to model Earth's climate system. It sounded fascinating to me. I went to talk with him. One thing led to another. I ended up doing my PhD with him in that department on sort of climate modeling and analyzing climate data. And those forays ultimately led into my postdoctoral research um, with uh, Ray Bradley at the University of Massachusetts in the uh, mid to late 1990s, 
where we began to piece together this puzzle of how the climate had varied uh, in the distant past. And that's what led to the hockey stick. And as I said before, you know, it wasn't the, the career path I had in mind. Uh, you know, when I double majored in applied math and physics at UC Berkeley, I didn't think I was, um, you know, setting myself up for a career at the center of the most contentious societal debate, the most fractious societal debate we've ever had. But that's ultimately where my research uh, led me. And, you know, there are no regrets, uh, no regrets on my part, uh, because it has given me this amazing opportunity to try to inform this conversation. Very good. Very good. Um, let's let's come right to this. I, I read the names of s- the titles of several of your books, and there's kind of a pathway there. It's usually focused on you and your work in climate change and the different sort of challenges to that work. Yeah. Why did you feel the need to write this book? Um, how did it happen? What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, you know, my past work, as you allude to, has been about the challenges um, in, you know, achieving climate action. Um, powerful vested interests that you've alluded to, fossil fuel uh, companies and uh, front groups uh, and, and conservative media outlets that have been doing their bidding, trying to, you know, uh, fool the public and, and policymakers um, when it comes to the scientific evidence for climate change to thwart any meaningful action on climate because that would hurt their bottom line. They continue to make uh, billions of dollars profits. Every year we remain addicted to fossil fuels and they've done everything in their power to try to at the very least slow that uh, transition from fossil fuels towards renewable energy, that necessary transition. And what I had really noted over the past few years and a lot of my past work, you know, uh, was really about climate change denialism. The hockey stick in the climate wars was about sort of my experiences in the center of the uh, attack machine, I suppose. Um, the madhouse effect with Tom Tolles, the former cartoonist for the Washington Post, sort of using Tom's satire and humor to, to really talk about that same story. You know, how, how it is that we're still encountering uh, attacks on the science, despite how uh, you know, clear the, the evidence has become. Well, that's sort of evolved over the last few years to a point where I think we can actually say that climate denialism is largely behind us. Uh, The fossil fuel interests that have been promoting it for for decades, literally, recognize that it's just not credible anymore. Uh, You're out in California. If you live in California, if you live on the West Coast and suffered through the unprecedented uh, fire seasons in recent uh, years, uh, or the Gulf Coast, uh, which witnessed an unprecedented Atlantic hurricane season this year, uh, the Midwest, uh, the derecho that destroyed uh, crops in uh, Iowa uh, in the spring and turned things upside down there, all of these extreme weather events that have been amplified by climate change, you know, climate impacts are now playing out in real time, and we can see it with our own two eyes. Um, it's very difficult for you know, the, the denying uh, talking heads to convince people that it's not happening. So they have, you know, they haven't given up. <laughs> they have way too much at stake, way too much skin in the game, uh, literally billions and billions of dollars um, in fossil fuels uh, that are still beneath the ground that they ultimately want to extract and sell. And so they haven't given up, but they've shifted their tactics because outright denial really isn't credible anymore. They've shifted to this new array of tactics. And I had noticed that uh, because I have been on the front lines of this, you know, war, as I call it, the climate wars. 
Um, and, and I've seen that shift in tactics away from denial towards other sort of, um, you know, arguably more insidious uh, yeah. ways of, pre- of preventing us from taking the needed action, getting us fighting with each other over our individual lifestyle choices, finger pointing, making it about individual behavior rather than the larger systemic changes that we need, the policies that we need, the regulations that we need um, when it comes to the fossil fuel industry. They don't want us thinking about those larger uh, you know, systemic changes because it'll hurt their bottom line, their profits. So instead, they would gladly have it be about you know us talking about you know our diet and our travel plans, how many children uh, we right. uh, have or choose to have, and getting us arguing with each other, finger pointing, carbon shaming each other because it deflects the whole um, you know conversation away from the needed systemic changes, and it divides us, right? divide and conquer um and there are other you know uh fronts in this war that this new climate war that i talk about uh, doomism so these yeah these are the tactics and i just want people to recognize them the book is to help people recognize these t- tactics because they're these are the only obstacles in our path now we're so close ah yes i like that la- those last three words we're so close that there is despite we're talking about a war and we're talking about a new war and we're talking about you know a uh, global civilization you are optimistic, ultimately. Let me ask a question, which yeah. just I've got one of the, you know, renowned climate scientists on the phone. For people, um, what is the relationship or the difference in definition, how they play together between climate and weather? Yeah, so, you know, climate, uh, is, some people have said, uh, and even t- uh, I think it was Mark Twain, or it's attributed to Mark Twain, maybe another apocryphal uh, supposed Mark Twain saying right. that, um, you know, uh, climate is what you expect and weather is what you get. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've sometimes heard the analogy used, and I think it's a good one, that, um, you know, uh, climate is uh, your uh, personality and weather is your mood. Mm. Uh, and your personality consists of the aggregates of your moods, I suppose. Uh, and the same is true here. The climate is the aggregation of our weather. It's the overall changes in the nature of our weather. So when people see these, uh, these floods, these hurricanes, that's weather Im- impacting them that day. And what once weather started impacting people in extreme ways, they began to realize climate was changing. That's right. I think what has happened, uh, a big part of the shift in consciousness and, um, and and really why denial has become untenable is because people can now feel it. The, the impact on our day-to-day weather has become so profound that we can literally see the fingerprint of human-caused climate change in individual extreme weather events, weather events that may very well have happened, whether or not we had you know, warmed up the planet, but weather events that have been made more extreme because of our impact on the planet, our impact on the climate. And nowhere is that more true than where I spent my sabbatical uh, last year, the first few months of 2020 in Australia, where I witnessed that firsthand. I witnessed the devastating impacts of climate change playing out across that continent in real time in what they now refer to as the, the black summer uh, down there, uh, an unprecedented summer of extreme drought, heat, and of course, bushfires that blanketed the entire continent. Wow. 
you're writing about a new climate war, and the new refers to the shift from as the sort of the public understanding and the public reality shifts. The war is the same war, in essence, but the tactics, the strategies have to shift as the, the context shifts. That's right. here's, a, yep. here's what is a slightly flip question, but maybe not. Who won the old climate war? Did anyone win the old one? Yeah, you know, nature did. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say we did, but, but, but nature did for us, right? Because we can now see climate change playing out. People can see it with their own two eyes. And so that war is over. That war has been ended. You could say we won it, um, but we won it because Mother Nature uh, spoke loudly and clearly. Last night I was thinking about this. I thought, here's the, my definition sort of the old war, the one in yeah. which you were attacked. The goal was to attack the science and the scientists head on. So enough doubt among enough people that the government, who's a necessary player if we're going to handle this, couldn't risk the economy on something that so many people still doubted. That yeah, it was the pressure that, that it, by, by, by sowing doubt among enough people, you could keep the government from feeling it had the cover to take bold action. Yeah, that's exactly right. The forces of denial and the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists, uh, and they're the fossil fuel uh, companies who have engaged in in, in these tactics and and those promoting their agenda, um, realized that they didn't actually have to win the scientific argument. They just needed to divide the public um, along partisan lines. Uh, If you could keep one of the two major parties firmly sort of attached to the notion that climate change is a hoax that it, and that acting on it will, will hurt the economy, when just the opposite is true, of course. Inaction is far more costly than action at this point, and the damage that climate change is doing. But if they could convince roughly half the public, one of the two major parties, and elect politicians who would sort of carry forward that uh, ideology that climate change is either not real or not a problem, then they could prevent the the policy actions uh, that they were seeking to forestall. You do think about and and write about some of the lessons of the pandemic. Um, I think many people can see that what we've got here is one is an immediate, the other is sort of a long term, but they are both global. They attack the rich as well as the poor. They are beyond our control. I mean, there's there's things going on here. And Do they work you... the poor the most, which is one of the ethical quandaries of, of both of these things, right? Those who, with the least resources. Yes. Um, yep, yep. And that that what we've seen, if you can take a step back, and to some extent those who have been cultivated by, by the forces of, of, of denial yeah. and, and, and division – may not be able to take a step back. But if you take a step back, you can see that there's been a cost to politicizing the pandemic. Um, in some sense, that could lead to a little bit of an awakening that there's a cost to politicizing climate as well, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is a point I've been making uh, you know, recently that one of the lessons that the pandemic taught us was the deadliness of ideologically motivated science denial because in the in the case of uh, coronavirus we can measure that toll literally in hundreds of thousands of lives here in the united states that was the toll um, of the campaign to deny 
the public health science that indicated uh, the need for social distancing, mask wearing, etc., because it was disadvantageous to uh, Donald Trump and his election prospects. And so that was ideologically motivated science denial, and it cost us hundreds of thousands of lives. And we all know people who lost their lives because of it. So it makes it very real, um, very immediate, very near. And I think it provides us an opportunity now to to then talk about, well, climate change, it's an even greater crisis because a year down the road, while coronavirus will be largely in our rear view mirror, although, of course, many of us have lost loved ones or, or people we know will suffer permanent consequences. But by and large, it'll feel like it's behind us. But the climate crisis will still be there looming large. And so I think that maybe this sets us up to have this necessary conversation about how we tackle this even greater crisis. Now understanding the damage um, that anti-science uh, can do uh, when we, we refuse to listen to what scientists have to say, um, how that can truly be deadly. Uh, and I think there are other lessons, so just about our fragility, that a, you know, a microscopic virus can turn our world upside down. I think it sort of helps us to understand how vulnerable we are with this population of nearly 8 billion people on the planet with finite food and water and space who rely upon this elaborate infrastructure that we've created. And anything that you know threatens that infrastructure uh, threatens uh, human civilization. I think we now have a better feel for that. Despite the fact that there's cracks in all of this uh partially fueled by uh, dividers and deniers and so on, that yeah. there's there's a shared vulnerability that I think we don't often let ourselves feel. There's, yeah. there's me, there's my family, there's my neighborhood, there's my company, there might be my church, and that's kind of my world. And that the, the, the pandemic has shown us that we all are vulnerable. I think that's another thing yeah. that might transfer to, to climate as well. I agree. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there, there are so many lessons. There's some interesting lessons in the pandemic when it comes to the role of you know, lifestyle versus systemic change. Um, you know, we've all been forced to make pretty dramatic lifestyle changes, um, not, you know, really voluntarily, but because of the social distancing constraints. Yeah. To, and, and that's going to lead, or I should say that has led. Um, the numbers are basically in now. Carbon emissions, global carbon emissions, dropped by about 7% last year. That's really good news. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is we've got to bring them down another 7% this year and another yeah. 7% the next year and so on for the next decade if we're to avert uh, catastrophic warming of the planet, if we're to stay within our carbon budget for avoiding uh, catastrophic warming of the planet. And that means that all of those lifestyle changes that we've made uh, only gets us a foot in the door because now we've got to go well beyond that. And the only way we'll be able to do that is by tackling the basic infrastructure uh, for energy, for transportation, for agriculture, etc., which is still dependent substantially on the burning of fossil fuels. Um, we, we need systemic changes if we are to stay on that trajectory that we've started to get on now that'll keep warming below catastrophic levels. Yeah, I think, by the way, what you cited is two very positive developments from this very negative circumstance. One is yeah. how um, I, I interviewed Robert Frank, the economist from Cornell recently. Yeah. He has a book called, um, uh, God, the, the name is escaping me, but it's, what it's about is, is using social contagion, using peer pressure and things 
in a positive way. Right. Well, right. he says, you know, we have made changes to our lives that we would have thought impossible, and we made them almost on a dime. And then the That's second right. lesson is, A, we can do that, and we have done that, and B, as you point out, the effects on the cli- on on the uh, cli- not on the climate yet, but on emissions and pollution yeah. and so on. By doing so, two very big lessons. Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, so sometimes out of tragedy yeah. comes opportunity, um, and I hate to say it's a silver lining because you know I, I know people uh, with loved ones who who, who perished uh, from yes. this virus. It's awful uh, tragedy, but if we can. You know, there will be sort of um, a, a little bit of a silver lining to it if it allows us to make this needed societal transition. And I think there's the possibility that it does, that it does help us do that. Okay, one thing I, I'm going to cover, I'm going to bounce a little bit, but one thing I do want to just see how it, how it, um, what your response to this is. But yeah. in, in 1999, when you published that graph and you were initially attacked, the information in Media Universe uh, of that time, looking at it from today, seems almost quaint, right? <laughs> Who could have imagined how much harder it would become to communicate and agree on the truth with the development of social media, where, as I put it, irritation-seeking algorithms prey for yeah, profit yeah. on fear, yeah. rage, and loneliness. Yeah, no, that's right, Terrence. And, you know, it was a very different media environment. We had still had sort of basic trusted voices that we, um, you know, I still remember, I'm old enough to remember uh, when I was a young child, those uh, broadcasts um, from Walter Cronkite and the, the way he would end those news broadcasts. And that's the way it was. Oh, my God. Uh, you may remember that. Yeah, you couldn't February say that today, 2nd, could you? There's no agreement on the way it is. <laughs> Isn't that profound? Isn't that profound? When, um, when, when Walter Cronkite said that, we all knew that those were the facts on this day, February 2nd, 2021. We've lost that. Um, and that makes all of these challenges more challenging and none more so than climate, um, the climate crisis, where it, there is literally, it is the most powerful and wealthy industry on the face of the planet that has an interest in clouding the public mindset and uh, and fooling policymakers or co-opting policymakers. They have immense power and wealth to do that. And there's a, a new media environment in the social media world, which can be gained by them, uh, hijacked by them for those ends. We thought that the internet, social media, we, we thought they were going to be these great democratizing tools. Right. Um, but as we've learned, any tool for democracy can be hijacked by by those with an agenda, and that's what we've seen happen, and it's led now to, you know, I think Trumpism was a logical consequence of the direction that everything uh, was going, and maybe, just maybe, Trumpism, uh, the Trump presidency, was us looking into the abyss and not liking what we saw collectively. Right. In other words, yes, yes, there is there is that possibility, and we can feel it these days even. You know, it's we, yeah. we don't want to bank on it yet, but we can sort of yeah. feel that. Um, yeah. Let me sticking with this for just a second. It, it seems to me I, I, I may be using the term loosely, but I think we've got a number of existential challenges of which climate change is probably the largest, most uh, consequential. But the pandemic, inequality, racial yep. division, the, yep. the, the hobbling of democracy, 
are yep. all to me. Some, and what's interesting and is that they all, all call, they're interrelated. They all call for understanding, cooperation, and collaboration. Right. Um, and yet, we live in a system, the U.S., governed by minority rule. Right. Which right. makes... Uh, which makes everything harder. It's like the, there's a finger on the scales from the start of the game. That's right. Um, and there's some uh, hard-won lessons, uh, I think, in, in those battles. I'd like to think that uh, the Democrats who have now uh, taken control of the Senate have learned um, some of the lessons uh, that, you know, uh, when it comes to the Obama presidency and the effectiveness with which the minority party, in that case the Republicans, were able to prevent um, any sort of progressive policy um, change, or at least much of uh, what was uh, attempted was prevented. Uh, you know, the, we, we didn't see anything close to the, the revolution in, you know, uh, health care that we really need to see, um, or, you know, any of the, the basic um, inequities that we still deal with uh, clearly persisted because they were effective in, in blocking um, efforts by, by Democrats. I think Democrats have learned that lesson. Um, and, you know, from the discussions over the last couple days as to what uh, congressional Democrats are going to do if they can't get Republicans on board for, um, you know, a bipartisan uh, sort of uh, relief, uh, COVID-19 relief, for example. Um, we need bold, you know, trillions of dollars relief package to really get things going again. And if Republicans if enough Republicans don't come across the aisle to join them, they're going to pass it through reconciliation with 50 Democrats and a tie-breaking vote uh, from the vice president. That's not something we would have seen during the Obama years, but I think we will see it now. So those are hard-won lessons, but I yeah. think they are lessons that are being taken to heart. Yeah. Okay, let me tell people, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Michael Mann. He's Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State and author most recently of The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And you can learn more uh, at Michael Mann. That's one word, and it's Michael, and Mann is M-A-N-N, michaelmann.net. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2021 conversation with climate scientist Michael Mann about his book, The New Climate War, in which he points out that now that denial is nearly impossible, we must defeat the fossil fuel industry's new strategies to postpone, slow, or disable effective action. Um, let's 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 go with that just a little bit longer. Your yeah. your response to the Biden administration so far, and your advice to the Biden administration. Yeah, you know it, it, it's hard to find much fault with what they've done so far, um, and and I give a lot of credit. Here's a shout out to. You know the Sunrise Movement and the Youth Climate uh, Movement, and you know the, the um, architects of the Green New Deal. I, I don't think we'll see something that looks like a Green New Deal passing this 50-50 Senate. Uh, I don't think the votes will be there, but the votes will be there for some sort of meaningful climate legislation that will complement all of the executive actions that uh, Joe Biden is taking. And none of that would have happened if it weren't for the pressure that was brought to bear by progressives who made sure that climate issues, climate justice in particular, was a, a, a big part of the sort of democratic agenda in this last election. And so Biden ended up campaigning on issues of 
climate, uh, uh, you know, climate action and climate justice, um, has a mandate um, on those issues and has already displayed uh, an intention to, um, you know, to um, meet those obligations um, with the actions that he has uh, unveiled already, the executive actions that he out- outlined last week that are very broad and sweeping across the entire federal government, uh, impact every single department, um, every single cabinet uh, level nomination, um, the Defense Department, Treasury, Ag, not just EPA and uh, you know Environmental Protection and, um, and and Department of Energy, which is where sort of climate policy always in the past sort of resided. It was sort of siloed into those two departments primarily. Now climate policy is integrated across the entire federal government and it is you know it's about as far as a chief executive could go towards implementing a, a green new deal without access to the legislative branch let yeah. me just say one yeah. of the things i've heard you mention also is is just the the up leveling of the status of of climate with with uh, the uh appointment of, of John Kerry and, yeah. and and those sorts of things. Talk just a bit about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, John Kerry has some real bona fides um, in the climate space. Uh, he helped negotiate uh, under the Obama administration um, as uh, you know, Secretary of State, helped negotiate the bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China, uh, the bilateral climate agreement that actually laid the groundwork for the uh, you know, extremely important uh, Paris Agreement. And uh, Kerry played an important role um, in negotiating uh, the Paris Climate Agreement as well. And so he has these bona fides when it comes to working with the rest of the world, with our international partners, um, collaboration, uh, engagement in global efforts, uh, diplomacy, the use of diplomacy to bring others along, it's he is almost the perfect person to be leading our international climate effort, which he is as the special envoy on climate um, appointed by Biden. And then we've got um, Gina McCarthy combining two former EPA administrators, Lisa Jackson and Gina McCarthy, sort of leading the domestic uh, effort. Um, and of course, with her, you know, experience as former uh, EPA administrator, um, she's got the chops to, 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 to do uh, that um, and to do it well. And so, you know, that's, that, that's really important. Um, and making sure that we telegraph to the rest of the world that we are back. The United yeah. States is back and we are ready to lead again. That's the most important thing that this administration can be doing. And they're doing that. They're signaling that. And I think that's going to bring along some other intransigent uh, countries. Um, Australia, I have a lot of friends down there, spent some time down there. They've had some, some struggles here with the prime minister, mm-hmm. um, uh, Morrison, Scott Morrison, who really has also, you know, uh, enabled fossil fuel interests, blocked meaningful climate progress. I think, you know, that the Biden administration um, is going to bring some pressure to bear on folks like Scott Morrison in Australia, bring some of these other intransigent actors along. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing you that, that, that I that's almost behind everything you're saying is that these ambitions all in the right direction have to bear fruit and and I would say have to bear fruit in the next two years so that um, that reflexive 
thing that American uh, voters seem to do, which is to, uh, you know, reject the party in power in the midterm elections doesn't happen and, and cut everything off, um, which I think is one of the motivators behind some of the way you look at, poli- how, like what you said before about yeah. you don't see Green New Deal in a 50-50 Senate, but right. you see possibilities. And it, and it seems that it's that being willing to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good uh, may be what we need to to not be uh, not have this all reversed in two years. That, that's exactly right. And I've used that term on several occasions um, in recent weeks because what we need is, you know, these executive actions are, are very important, but we also need, uh, you know, uh, a longer legacy um, uh, when it comes to climate action uh, from this presidency. And that does mean uh, working uh, with Congress to make sure that we implement policy that will, you know, that will be robust with respect to the vagaries of, you know, future uh, presidential administrations, that we uh, sort of use both of those tools, executive action to accomplish everything we can right now, and locking in some meaningful, uh, long-lasting legislative policies to to help get us on the road that we need to be on. I'm pretty confident that that we can see that over the next couple of years. Um, I think, again, there's some hard-won lessons um, when it comes to the importance of of getting legislation through and not making concessions. And look, if Republicans don't come across the aisle, uh, then we're going to have to settle for, uh, you know, a democratic, um, you know, climate legislation. Uh, that if that if that's all we can get, then then we need to take it. But yeah. there is the opportunity to bring along maybe some Republicans and, and get something bipartisan. Maybe maybe start to bring some of the good faith back into this conversation. Mm-hmm. And and one of the thing I've seen you also point out is that you think that climate change is actually one of those issues on which this is more possible perhaps than some others. Um, we know where the opposition is, the fossil fuel industry, and and the Republican Party has, through its Koch millions and Koch brother millions and so on, has yep. linked, has sort of linked itself yep. with the fossil fuel industry. But yep. independent or at least a, a few Congress people and senators know that their state needs help. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, you know, uh, I mean, if you're in Florida, for example, if you're a Republican in, in Florida, like uh, Rob DeSantis, who has in many ways sort of towed the, the Trump party line. But on climate, he's actually um, uh, really supported meaningful climate actions. Uh, you know, if your people are suffering the consequences of climate change right now, it's very difficult to deny it's happening. You, you see some cop outs. Uh, for example, Marco Rubio um, has said that, oh, you know, we, we do need to do something about uh, climate change here. Uh, we need, you know, to adapt, oh. <laughs> which is, of course, one way. It's soft denial. It's what I talk about in the book. It's a false solution. It's an effort to make it sound like you're, you know, talking a good game, but in fact, you're not supporting the actions that are necessary. So there's still some ways to go. But, you know, at least some Republicans see the writing on the wall. They know that younger Republicans overwhelmingly under the age of 40, I believe it's something like 70 percent of Republicans support um, meaningful action on climate. And so there's a generational shift underway. You know, we're seeing, you know, coal undergo a death spiral. 
And that's largely due to market forces. The fossil fuel industry is no longer quite as powerful as it once was. And that means that it's not going to sort of um, have the leverage that it had in the past. It means, uh, you know, there's some chinks in the armor. And I think that all of that sort of comes together in, if you'll forgive the term, a perfect storm of, um, you know, of factors that really do make it possible now to achieve meaningful action, but not without continuing to push forward. Because, look, fossil fuel interests, as I outline in the book, are still using all the tools available to them to, to slow things down. And, and we need an equal and even greater force in the opposite direction, um, uh, climate uh, you know, advocacy on the part of the people to make sure that politicians don't give in to these tactics, these delay tactics. Right. So, OK, let's let's talk about uh, one of the, the, the key uh, messages of the book, which is the evolution of the denial, uh, uh, not denial, but the force, the, the delay tactics, which is what I think it is. I, I, I look at yeah. sort of how an old industry especially something as large as the uh, fossil fuel industry, has so much power and money that it, it cannot ultimately stop the evolution of new industries like renewables, but it can delay and disable them, handicap right. them. So what are right. some of the new strategies and tactics given the new realities? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as I sort of alluded to before, uh, divide and conquer um, getting us to fight with each other, um, especially over our lifestyle choices, whether you're a vegan, whether, you know, you uh, fly um, or, you know, what, what mode of transportation, what kind of automobile you use, um, getting us arguing with each other because it divides us. Um, we no longer represent a united front demanding action when we're divided in that way. And as I said before, it plays into this deflection campaign by fossil fuel interests to uh, make it about individual lifestyle choices, about your carbon footprint, rather than the overwhelming carbon footprint, which is the fossil fuel industry. 70% of our carbon emissions are from the burning of fossil fuels, or really from the fossil fuel uh, you know, uh, industry. Um, uh, 100, basically 100 fossil fuel companies responsible for the overwhelming majority of our fossil fuel, our carbon emissions. Um, so they want to make it about you and me rather than them. <laughs> and uh, that we have to keep our eyes on the prize. We have to make sure that they are reined in with regulations, um, with market mechanisms like subsidies for renewable energy and carbon pricing that level the playing field so that renewable energy can compete fairly. Uh, getting rid of uh, you know, uh, not not allowing for the construction of new fossil fuel infrastructure and getting rid of subsidies for fossil fuel companies. These are all things that the uh, Biden administration has said it will do. Um, that's important. We need the systemic change. Um, Doomism talked a little bit about that, right? Well, let me yeah. let me just um, let me just say a couple of things yeah. about about the deflection strategy yeah. of making you you actually. Because uh, I, I think this will hit home to people. You write in in the book about the. Uh, the, the crying Indian um, uh, image uh, years ago, which was another and an incredibly successful uh, attempt to deflect to individual action. And, and let me just say, I recently did a series of webinars uh, for the Harvard Alumni Association on climate change. Ah. Yep. And one of the things is uh, five sessions. People would sign when they registered, they were allowed to. What question would you ask? Right. We had different subjects, different panelists, etc. But 
an enormous number, I mean, maybe a third of the questions were, what can I do? What can I as an individual do? So when you feed that hunger, it's, 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 it's fairly satisfying. It's what people, you know, it gives people, as one thing you talk about there, it gives people a sense of agency, Absolutely. but yep. it's, it's, it's in some sense a, a, a tangent from, solve, from ultimately solving the problem. Yeah, I think there's a fine line there um, that we have to walk, um, which is, look, you know, a lot of these things um, that we, we can do in our everyday lives, um, voluntary, you know, choices that, uh, you know, changing our diet, um, um, how we, you know, our modes of transportation, there are things that we can do in our everyday lives that decrease our environmental footprint and our carbon footprint. Um, they often save us money. They often make us healthier. Uh, they make us feel better about ourselves. They set a good example for other people. So, of course, we should do all those things. But what we can't allow is for that to be framed as if it's an alternative to the other thing, the even more important thing that we can all do, which is hold our policymakers accountable. Because you and I can't provide subsidies for uh, you know, renewable energy. Uh, you and I can't uh, you know, impose carbon pricing. You and I can't provide funding for green energy infrastructure. Uh, you and I can't regulate the fossil fuel industry. These are only things that our government can do. And so we need our policymakers being accountable to us and our interests rather than just being a rubber stamp for the polluting interests. And, you know, voting is an important way of doing that. And we have voted in a government now. Uh, elections have consequences, as they say. And because we did turn out enough um, you know, progressives and, and people who care about climate turned out that we elected a government, in fact, both a Congress now and a president who are on the right side of the climate issue. But we can we have to continue to put pressure on them because there's a lot of pressure coming from the fossil fuel industry still. Um, so, yeah, you know, individual behavioral change is important. It gives us a sense of agency. It, 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 it can uh, make a difference, but it can't be a substitute for the needed policy changes. And too often, industry has tried to make it seem like it is a substitute. That's what the Crying Indian campaign was about. Coca-Cola trying to convince us we don't need bottle bills, um, to, which would, you know, require... Um, bottles and cans to be processed, uh, recycled and processed by them, it would have been a real solution to what is now one of the other great environmental threats that we face today, global plastic yep. pollution. We, ha we have them to thank for that problem because they were so successful in the deflection campaign that made it entirely about individual behavior to the exclusion of the needed policies. Right. And one of the things I would think is even if you don't say to yourself, I am pitting my individual actions against working for collective action. Yeah. There's only so much attention we have as human beings. It's a That's very right. precious resource. That's right. And if it's, they yeah. can make you put your attention uh, into that disagreement about personal lifestyle, you may not have enough attention left to to fight for collective action. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's actually peer-reviewed studies, psychology uh, literature that supports that, that demonstrates that that really is true. Too much of an emphasis on individual action can sort of crowd out uh, emotional investment in systemic solutions. Well, I mean, I was going on an intuition, but I'm, I'm glad to hear yeah. from the academic that, that it was... There, there, it's cited in, in my book. There are actually studies that show that it really does seem to work that way. Yeah. yeah. Um. So let, let, let me ask one other question, which uh, is you talk about we've got to remove subsidies from fossil fuels and people would be 
people who don't know the numbers would be shocked at how much they still exist. And I'll let you tell us sort of the round numbers of that. And you say we should be subsidizing uh, renewables and clean energy. What is the current market situation in terms of pricing? Yeah. So, you know, there is a lot of debate right now, even within sort of the uh, environmental progressive community um, about uh, the role of uh, carbon pricing. And there's a sense among some uh, environmental progressives that uh, carbon pricing will hurt uh, frontline communities. It'll hurt the poor, um, the disadvantaged um, uh, the mi- minority communities. And that, you know, I try to, you know, address that um, in the book because it's it's really a myth. It's a, it's a myth that to some extent has been spread by those forces of inaction because they don't want to see a price on carbon. And hey, if they can convince progressives that it's bad, that's a huge win for them because look, they've already got the right <laughs> in a, uh, you know side of our political spectrum, you know, uh, on their side. If they can actually win over some progressives by convincing them that carbon pricing uh, is not consistent with a just transition. That's a huge win, and they've been doing that. Um, bad actors, uh, Russia has been interfering in our politics and politics in other countries, trying to defeat um, carbon pricing efforts because they, you know, Russia's greatest asset, um, Putin's greatest asset, is the fossil fuels that are still buried beneath their soil, and they they, they want to extract and sell them. And, and, and as a result, they've they've been um, actually as as a sort of um, a petro state uh, been working. Uh, in bad faith to try to prevent uh, meaningful climate action uh, on the international stage. Um, and so, look, the, the reality is that it all depends entirely on how it's done, um, where it's been uh, imposed, where uh, carbon pricing has actually been implemented in Australia until the conservative government got rid of it, and in Canada under the Trudeau administration. Um, it's actually ended up uh, being progressive. Uh, low-income earners have actually gained because the revenue is actually returned to the people on a progressive basis. And so carbon pricing can be done in a just way, and it's a critical tool in the toolbox. Look, it's not a panacea, but we need all the tools in the toolbox to solve this problem. And carbon pricing, in my view, is one of them. Yeah, I, I will say that as I, I, I'll mention a couple of things. One, I went and I looked uh, sort of what are they, uh, you know, sort of did a search on arguments pro and con, carbon yeah. pricing, carbon tax, cap and trade. And the first thing I will tell you is you are absolutely right that almost every reference against them at this point is still from the right, right. from the Cato Institute, from, you, you, you know, from the National Review. But the, the, the justice issue... Um, the progressive versus regressive issue. Um, uh, And with cap and trade, uh, uh, there's the thing of local versus global. You cut the global total, but it's likely that the place that gets hurt will be the local poor communities. Um, That's a possibility, yeah. um, And then... And then uh, uh, what one question, and, and I think what you're saying is that the devil is in the details, but we shouldn't yeah. take it off the table by uh, assuming it will be a bad, uh, that it will be done badly. But one of the things is right. what, what I can't help thinking is what will the carbon lobby demand in return? Will we have to reduce regulations? Will we have to reduce clean energy subsidies? Will we, do you know what I mean? It's like, that yeah. really is where it's going to come down to it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and so uh, in the end, um, you know, th- this is something I actually uh, tweeted about some time ago, um, 
when there was sort of, uh, I forget, there was a discussion um, about this and sort of progressive pushback at carbon pricing. Um, and, you know, and they said, well, look, uh, somebody made the argument, we shouldn't do it because it's just, it's politically unpopular. So, you know, of course it's unpopular. Any meaningful, you know, climate action has been targeted by the inactivists through advertising campaigns, through the vast resources they have, attacks by the the right-wing media, um, the Murdoch uh, media um, in particular, that has essentially um, been sort of the PR outlet for the fossil fuel industry. Um, And so what they always seek to do is to make any meaningful solution unpopular. Um, So progressives will say, oh, well, you know, um, cap and trade is really unpopular, so we shouldn't do it. And then let's try a carbon tax. Well, you know, then they're going to attack the carbon tax. And then, all right, well, that's unpopular, so let's just do it through subsidies for uh, renewable energy. Then they attack that. It's whack-a-mole. So the problem, as I said in this tweet um, uh, a couple years ago in response to uh, a conversation about all this, you know, the problem isn't the prescription it's the power of the opposition. <laughs> um, as long as they have the power and influence that they have, they're, of course, going to target any meaningful action, anything that hurts their bottom line, which is the profits that they get off of our addiction to fossil fuels. We have to recognize that grit and, grit and bear it and just fight through. Don't be dis- distracted. Don't be dissuaded by the pushback. Of course, they're going to push back course they're going to attack it we just have to make sure that our ground forces are mobilized um, and that we push back with even greater force um, in the direction of meaningful action and so don't give up on advocating for policies simply because you think that they're unpopular with some people of course they're going to be unpopular with some people the fossil the fossil fuel industry has ensured that they will use the resources to make sure that these things are always as unpopular as they can make them we just have to fight that fight because there's nothing uh, you know nothing less than the uh, future of this planet at stake okay let me just finally say uh, we didn't have enough time to to deal with it here but you do believe that sort of broad based justice uh, systems change um, uh, point of view of something like the Green New Deal is ultimately what we need to be have a healthy relationship with with our climate and our environment and each other. Uh, you believe that the whole question of is uh, is unlimited growth through extraction and disposal ultimately sustainable? Do, you know, is is yeah. that up for grabs at some point? The point you yeah. then make is, but but Climate change is so imminent that we may not be able to do either of those things this year or next year. And so we should do what we can, knowing that that we need those two things ultimately. That's exactly right. Look, let's work within the system that exists to get the action that we need right now while working, of course, to change that system for the better. And so there's room for both of those things. But there really is a time scale issue here where the climate crisis, you know, is um, so urgent uh, that we, we need to work within, for example, the market economy that exists today um, for meaningful climate action. While arguably, you know, we do need to think about whether, you know, an extractionist uh, market economy 
is ultimately consistent, you know, a resource-driven global economy, if that's ultimately consistent with environmental sustainability. There are some deeper questions that we need to ask and address, and I hope that we do. Um, and I hope that we do solve uh, many of the larger systemic problems that we still face. Uh, but this is something we've got to solve now. Yeah, we've got to change the trajectory now. And as you point, another thing you point out is that given the evidence of what happened due to the pandemic, uh, it turns out that shows us even more that we can. Um, if I asked you to just give us the, the, the bullet points of your four-point battle plan, not to flesh them out, just the bullet points, we'll close on that. Okay, great, thanks. So, you know, the plan is, uh, first of all, um, you know, let's take advantage of the moment that we're in. Um, the youth climate movement, the social justice movement, uh, this renewed uh, activism, we're, we're at this critical point. We, we've seen some important tipping points, um, good tipping points, um, when it comes to uh, issues like marriage equality and, and now uh, racial justice. Um, and, and I think we're very close to the tipping point on climate, but we you know, need to um, take advantage of the energy that exists right now um, in, in these movements. Um, we need to listen to the voice of the children. Um, you know, they have recentered this issue where it always should have been about uh, not just science and economics and politics, but about uh, ethics, about the ethics of, you know, preserving this plant for future generations, uh, the ethics of you know, uh, solving a problem uh, where the worst impacts are being felt by those who had the least role in creating the problem. Um, educate, educate, educate. Uh, don't necessarily uh, debate climate change deniers. And, uh, many of them are hardened in their ways. They're driven by ideology rather than facts. And we could waste a lot of time and effort trying to convince them. In fact, they probably like nothing more than us wasting all of our time that, and effort trying to convince them. That's right. There's that uh, so attention again. Yeah. Yeah, so let's focus on what I call the persuadable middle, people who are genuinely confused or who, who don't think it's possible to solve the problem. They think it's just too big. Um, a little bit of education there, providing them the tools and the information that they need to realize that we can do this and that there are things that they can do in their everyday lives to, to, to help uh, move us along. That's really important. Um, and then, you know, disregarding the doomsayers, um, the doom. The, the doomism, the idea that's too late to do anything. Um, the irony is, of course, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we believe the doomers and we listen to them and we, free, we refuse to act now, then it will become too late to do anything about the problem. Very good. So the new book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. The website is michaelman.net. Michael man, M-A-N-N, -N, all one word, dot net. For this conversation and many others, interviews, articles, to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. Uh, they're both the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on what we're going to talk about in eight or ten articles of relevance, um, you can sign up at my site or you can email me at temcnally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, at Mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum Podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, most podcast sites. You'll find years of podcasts in a searchable form at my site. Listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice. You can follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. 
Thanks to George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices. And most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Michael Mann. Keep up your good work. Thank you, Terrence. It was a real pleasure talking with you.